walking along a beautiful trail in one of the highest points of Ibiza, which is one of the three Balearic Islands, or four if you include Formentera. And I can see in the distance uh, Mallorca. The sun recently rose and the heat is starting to rise itself, so you can hear the cicadas in the background. And when thinking about the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset, it's interesting how we almost never say, well, that's a bit of a crap sunrise or sunset. We find each of them beautiful. And the reason is because there are some situations that we choose not to adapt to. Your brain evolved to adapt, to continually redefine normality, to find a set point that is at the average of your experience. And that experience could be of nature, it could be in the family or your organization, or in a loving relationship, another person. We typically set ourselves to the average of our experience. And your brain naturally does this, and there's a reason for it. It's because your brain wants to be able to detect change and difference. And so one of the best ways to do so is to set itself to the average so it can tell whether something goes up or down. But there's a cost to this, which is the adaptation is very much passive. In the next episode, you'll hear about a story of stepping into, for instance, the cinema where you initially can't see anything, and eventually your eyes and your brain will adapt to the average illumination. Well, this is what we do all the time. So the question is not whether you will adapt, because you will. The question is much deeper than that. The question is whether you're going to put it the energy to decide the direction and the way in which you're going to adapt, to have agency in your adapting brain. Because it's only then that you can actually take agency in your life. So ask yourself, in this context that you're in, is this something I want to adapt to? And in your loving relationships, is this a person to whom I want to adapt? And what's more than that, maybe to choose not to adapt to them. Because maybe one of the reasons you're meeting them and being with them and spending time with them is because they are better than the typical person that you've engaged with before. And why not treat them like the sunrise? Why not treat them like the sunset? Not adapt to their average, which will enable you to continue to celebrate them and the relationship you're, you're in. It's a choice you have. And we so often have more choices than we think in the way we engage in life. I hope you enjoy this episode. In my initial turning left, which led me across the States, I'd start each day with coffee in hand, looking at the map in the general direction of the West Coast. My destination each day was actually a color, and that color was blue. And the reason is that water is literally part of our existence. It makes up 60% of our bodies and 71% of the Earth. Homo sapiens, in fact all life forms, came from water and continue to evolve in proximity to it. It maintains the integrity and the communication within the cells that constitute us, but also the integrity and communication between the so-called cells that constitute our families, our communities, and our larger societies. 
Seaways were and are the axolot and dendrites of civilization, which is why one of our greatest innovations was the sail, which enabled us to move between ourselves. And I'm a sailor. I love being on the sea and moving with the wind. The sail was invented on the Nile, where the currents and the winds go in opposite directions, so they could float up in one direction and sail back with the other. And it was a transformative technology. Most technologies, actually, if you think about it, um, they can enable us to do what we can already do faster, easier. They're not transformative. They're useful. Those that transform are different. They make the invisible visible, the implicit explicit. Consider the microscope or the telescope or the MRI machine. In fact, even the advent of the book, which itself was born out of one of the cleverest human inventions, which you might not be aware of which was the space between words. It's remarkable that prior to the space between, language was actually written as one continuous string of letters, making reading really actually quite difficult, which is one of the reasons why the Lava Misfit celebrates in between, because it's the in between where meaning is created. Transformative inventions like these, like the sail or the MRI or the microscope, enabled us to see landscapes we'd never seen before, even light years away, or to interact with people we never knew existed who have radically different ideas of truth grounded in radically different lived experiences shaped by their foundational geographies, to, or to see inside our bodies while still living, or even to travel in our minds, which is what a book enables you to do to imagine experiences of what could be, which affect how you will perceive what is in the future. Each of these transformations challenges what we thought to be true already, and in doing so reveals the larger hidden unconscious self to the conscious one. Prior to the advent of the lens, for instance, our Earth was the center of the universe. After, it became a small blue dot moving on its own without intention through an expanding cosmos. Letting go of truth is required for transformation, which almost always requires energy or input, a struggle, even a fight, which defines a protest as its most fundamental level. The input of energy into a system to enable it to let go, to go from what I call A to not A. What you see, what you know, and what you believe, each now of your life, is an emergent manifestation of the trial and error process of experience, which gave rise to the assumptions and biases that define you, that are encoded in your brain. Strategies that enable and enabled you and your ancestors to use your past to usefully predict the future. But most of your assumptions and biases are invisible to you, which is why when you adventure with openness into the wild beyond you, you will see what you thought to be a truth as actually a contextual truth. Change the context and the truth itself can change. The result is self-awareness, a self-honesty, which is one of the most difficult honesties we can engage in. So I was traveling through Montana and I was traveling fast. It's because it's a civilized place there. One can go 75 miles per hour on a two-lane undulating highway through inspired landscapes. I came over the brow of an incline, and before me was a straight descent that disappeared over the next hill. My temptation to fill that descent was strong, so I actually filled it and accelerated and continued to do so. Going the opposite direction were three cars moving fast, 
and the middle one said police on its side. Well, what happened next, I assumed, would be obvious, right? But it proved not to be. My assumptions were challenged. I immediately pulled over and waited. And it took the police officer several minutes to eventually find a place to turn around and come back. And eventually, when looking into the rearview mirror, I saw a car speckled with flashing red and blue lights. And it parked behind me. Its driver was named Jack, a state trooper. His manner was present, official, and surprisingly open. He knew what he needed to do, as did I. But his reason for doing so is what matters here. He asked if I knew how fast I was going, which is a typical question. My answer was a genuine one, which was no, as I truly didn't know how fast I was going. But I said, I know it was a good deal faster than 75 miles per hour. So he told me. And the relatively large number felt about right and proved to be an expensive number. And you could argue rightly so, of course. Now here's a bit of an aside. Why didn't I try and lie to Jack? Well, for one, he had technology on his side. But far more importantly, it was me who decided to fill the space in the way that I did so. So it'd be silly to pretend otherwise. As noted in a previous episode, dishonesty creates the necessity for further dishonesty. It's a pyramid scheme made up of cars that will eventually fall or require large amounts of energy and stress and no wind to hold it together, which is why continually to turn left in life is for me a practice in building a more modest, more resilient, and less stressful way to live. Jack then asked, well, why? Why go so fast? I said in all honesty, look at this space, it's beautiful, it's stunning. Admittedly, it wasn't such a rational response, but it was my contextual truth, and he understood it, and he even agreed, yes, you're right, he said, it is gorgeous. So why pass through beauty so quickly? Jack asked. I love a good question. That is where the cash is, not in the right answer, as many assumed. Next time you're at a dinner party, most likely you know, post-COVID, notice how the conversation around the table ebbs and flows. Also notice how most of it's information-based. It's kind of data, trivial pursuit. Did you know... It can be interesting, but usually not transformative, because it only offers one part of what's required for transformation, kind of diversity of experience, information. But then notice what happens when someone asks a great question. The conversation stops. Everyone's attention is piqued. Yes, that's amazing. I never thought of it that way before, people will say which is remarkable because in some sense you haven't said anything, but what you have done is you revealed to them an assumption that they didn't know they had, and in doing so, the vista increases. Questions, which is a word that begins with the word quest, initiates an adventure into what is unknown, and the result is visibility. Visibility of one's previously unknown assumptions upon which one's truths were grounded. In physics, we call these theorems. In, in any paper on physics, as in any scientific paper worth its salt, these assumptions and biases are stated up front. Questions are our brain's greatest technology. It's a technology that embraces, indeed requires, the humility to utter one of the most difficult collections of words in our lexicon. Those words are, I don't know. 
but our world is driven by knowing. We are rewarded by how much uncertainty we turn into certainty, how many blank pages we turn into blueprints. Indeed, every religion is an instruction manual for living, which is why one of the most dangerous things in life is not an action. It is an upturned tonation in one's voice, since every revolution begins with doubt, begins with a question. Usually that question is why. Jack's question was a brilliant one. It was simple, to the point, challenged my assumptions, for which I had no answer. His question revealed to me my biases of moving fast through beauty at the expense of clarity. It was also the manner in which he asked his question. He asked it not with the accusation, but being humble and curious. He wasn't being critical or condescending. Though I'll, had I been more defensive, I might have heard it this way. But having accepted that I was the cause of my own cost, I had nothing to defend. And he too felt this. The result was a 45-minute conversation on the side of a Montana road between strangers who were becoming companions in adventure and travel. We talked about many things, including the nature of policing itself and leadership. He shared with me the difference between those, like himself, who are trying to serve and protect versus those who are to enforce, a fundamental distinction which translates into radically different ways of leading. The conversation expanded my thinking as it revealed hidden assumptions and biases about myself and the world, including his world. It also offered a new direction in my route left. As I was leaving, he pointed out a road on the map which deviated from the main highway, actually was, was my want. It led me into a landscape of beautiful aloneness through high rolling hills of blues and greens and oranges, of water and land and wilderness. While passing through, there was a moment when I felt the salt water of my eyes rolling down my face from the joy of a diminished ego that felt integrated with the landscape around, observed at a slightly slower speed than before, which is the moment of awe. I ended the day's journey walking along the three rivers that pass through Missoula, Montana. While driving along Jack's route, I reflected on our fortuitous meeting, one of many chance encounters on my way left turn across the states in the lead-up to a remarkably contentious election. Which brings me to the point of this episode. What defines a good leader is how you lead others into uncertainty. It's how one uses power that matters for good and evil towards a lover or towards your friends and towards your family, towards those in one's institutions, and yes, towards yourself. Do you use it to protect, to care, to enable, or do you use it to disable, to dominate, to control? Let me take you back to the dinner party, where a remarkable question was just asked. Think about how you felt about that party, and then think about how you felt in relation to its host. And I don't mean how you felt about the person. I mean, think how the feeling of the party, the group itself, was a manifestation of that person. If one's host is exuberant and generous, then the whole gathering is exuberant and open. If the host is quiet and introverted, then the whole gathering is quiet and subdued. I call this the host effect, which describes how the wave being of the host becomes embodied in the wave being of the gathering. What is remarkable is that this effect spans whole organizations and societies and even counties and countries. The personality of Facebook and its priorities as an organization are the way of being of its host, its founder. 
the founders of Target and Walmart came from the same town around the same time, but their personalities were very different. One resulted in a nickel and dime store, and the other a department store. In other words, one focused on cheap stuff, and the other on service. Target to this day maintains the identity of its host. It donates millions of dollars to charity every month and has one of the highest loyalty rates of any store in the U.S. Whereas the loyalty of Walmart is as low as the cost of its products. Now consider something like New York City. Its founders came from Amsterdam. They weren't Puritans. Amsterdam at the time was the seat of religious diversity and acceptance. That diversity and acceptance remains to this day in New York City, several hundreds of years later. For the brain, smiling is contagious, laughter too, given a certain density of people, and that the laughing person is no more than three people away. So too is stress and unkindness, though. We know from neuroscience that brains infect other brains with their way of being. Perceptions contage. Intolerance transmits. But so too does toleration respect. So too does kindness. Hosts create a context for others to be or not to be. To be creative or stagnant, afraid or open, cruel or compassionate, it begins with the host, as well as the architecture of the space in which the host exists, though the power of architecture for expanding perception is for another episode. It's not just who you surround yourself with that shapes you. It's the leaders you choose to surround. So be conscious of who you follow, because when you combine perceptual contagion with the fact that your brain continually redefines normality, you will, in a sense, become them. Your brain is adapted to adapt. It's evolved to evolve. The context in which you find yourself now is a context into which your brain will adapt. It's just what it does, and often it happens without you noticing. When you walk into the cinema from a bright afternoon day to watch a matinee, at first you can't see. So you stop and you wait. In time, your eyes and the rest of your brain then adapt to the average level of illumination. In the same way that your visual perception anchors itself to the average illumination of your surrounding environment, your beliefs and concepts are anchored to the average as well as the dominant beliefs and ways of being of the society, your culture, your country, your family that surround you. So remember to periodically ask yourself of your life, is this a normal to which I want to adapt? Because in time you will. And when it becomes society's normal, your brain will be less and less likely to see it as anything other than normal. It will become the average illumination of our societal world. And from this new normal, all else will be compared. What is bad now was once good. Equally, what we perceive to be good now, example, kindness and integrity, can perceived as weakness in the near future, if we so choose to let it. This is what is happening to you now in the US politics. Whether you're on the right or the left, or top or bottom, you are and always have been experiencing the consequences of the host effect. The normal ways of being of your host, for better or for worse, have or will soon become your normal. The qualities and pathologies of your leader matter. Their qualities and pathologies, their way of being and interacting will become normal to all of us. But you have the power to choose this. It just doesn't happen to you or to us. Leaders are manifestations, embodiments, not impositions. This is because the most important person in the movement is, ironically, not the leader. Alone, the leader is just another person wildly dancing on a hill in the middle of nowhere, leading no one, infecting no one. 
But as soon as that solo dancer is joined and their way of being is embodied by another, the mad dancer becomes a leader and the madness normalizes. Which again can become a great thing if that madness is, for instance, toleration, compassion, as opposed to division and spite. There is no host without a party. Given its importance, is there any evidence best way to choose, indeed to create leadership, that is predicated on what we know about perception? The answer is yes. It comes back to Jack and the three rivers to which he led me. And here's a quote from the film A River Runs Through It. Eventually all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's greatest flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. I stayed next to many great rivers, lakes and two oceans in my left turn across the U.S. One of them was the three rivers that passed through Missoula, which was the town in the story of the film A River Runs Through It. It's a story of leadership, of self and others in times of great uncertainty. These rivers, like all bodies of water, enable people access to other landscapes and communities with very different assumptions and biases, hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles away. In doing so, they expose one to many, and we know from biology how essential diversity is for thriving, whether as an individual, organization, or culture. Indeed, diversity is the engine of evolution itself. However, what bodies of water also do, which is so often overlooked is that they also integrate across that diversity. Consider the port cities, which are my favorite cities in the world. They are often outliers of their own civilization. Why? Because they are the places where the diversity of the world integrates. Singapore, Amsterdam, New York City, and London. They are human ecotomes. What is an ecotome? They are the transitions between spaces, where the sea meets land, the forest meets plain. These zones contain the greatest speciation of life on our planet, as well as the greatest speciation of culture in our society. While we no longer rely on rivers and lakes and oceans to connect us as much as we did, we are still connected. In fact, the world is more interconnected than it ever has been through the advent of social media. And as it becomes so, it will be increasingly unpredictable consequence of self-determination, which, I argue, is the perceptual foundation for Boris Johnson's Brexit in the UK and Donald Trump's America First isolationism. The problem is, it literally cannot work. While we can control the interaction along waterways, we cannot apply the same strategies to the modern age. In such a world, the concept of leadership itself must change. Fortunately, evolution as it almost invariably does, as it has been experimenting for billions of years, has given us a solution, a way of being in your brain that embodies five principles. The first, celebrate uncertainty, which encourages questions that spawn from the perspective of gain, not loss. Two, foster intrinsic motivation. To have the process of creativity be its own reward, which will enable persistence in the face of tremendous adversity. Three, be open to possibility. To encourage the diversity of experience that is the engine of change, from social changes to evolution itself. Four, collaborate. To find value, compassion, the diversity of a group and system, 
which expands its space of possibility, ideally combining naive with expert by finding integration across that diversity. And five, act intentionally with criticality. Ultimately, to act with awareness, to engage constantly with the reason for why your cells have moved forward. We've talked about that reason in previous episode. Why do we call this way of being that embodies these five principles? We call it science. This is because science does not reduce the scientific method. That is the craft of science. To be a good scientist is a way of being that defines how you engage in the world. What is more, the first of these four principles are those that we embody in play, which means that the way of being that evolution gave us to engage adaptively with an increasingly uncertain world is play with intention. Indeed, anything that is creative, including art, music, architecture, and leadership, are, I argue, play with intention. In other words, science, at least as I define it here. So how then can we select and create the leaders who will enable themselves and those who follow them to thrive in uncertainty? Well, it turns out that the success of any company is associated with only three real qualities. Lead by example, admit mistakes, and see qualities in others. Well, why these three and how do they relate to play with intention? It's because leading by example is a leader who is trusted and who creates an ecology of trust. This is important since one can only play, explore, challenge, and feel agency within a space that is trusted. Number two, admit mistakes, creates an ecology that celebrates questions as the primary currency for innovation. This too is important since nothing interesting begins with knowing. It begins with not knowing. To see the qualities of others creates an ecology that enables not just diversity, but integration across that diversity, which is an inherent quality in the most adaptable natural systems that play. Which means the three qualities of successful leadership are the actual qualities that enable these five principles I spoke about previously, which are essential to be a good scientist, to be a good creator, to enable play with intention. In short, what defines a good leader is how she or he leads others into uncertainty, into the dark. Good leaders, powerful leaders, they empower. So coming back to our current socio-political world, ask yourself, irrespective of what side you're on, is the context in which we find ourselves, the context you would like your brain to adapt to? And are the qualities of leaders the ones that you would like to be normal in the future, as they will become a way of being for which future perceptions will be created? But then also ask yourself whether you exhibit these qualities. Are you creating an ecology that expands or contracts those around you? Are you creating complicated silos which often require dishonesty, unreliability, and this conflict within yourself and with others in order to maintain the assumptions and biases that you fear to doubt? Or does your way of being seek integrity and understanding through questions that take you out of you, away from the perpetual self-focus that we so often have, often motivated by the intention of personal enlightenment, and back out into nature, back out into the lives of others from which you become a sandbar? It is being a sandbar for others that is ironically where true personal insight and expansion lives. Remember, leadership is not restricted to leaders of countries or institutions, nor is leadership a person. It's an embodiment of principles and ideals, a thing we become, and each of us leads within our larger families, our children, our friends, our romantic relationships. We lead those who rely upon us 
practically and emotionally, and each of us is simultaneously led by the very same family members, children, friends, and lovers. In other words, those who affect us emotionally and practically, including the different yous that are inside you. Asking these questions may initiate a quest that reveals assumptions that you didn't know you had or that you thought to be true already about you or your context. If that happens, what will you do then? As I've noted in a number of previous episodes in this series, you don't really reveal yourself when context is wonderful. You reveal and you recreate yourself when your context is difficult, since it's only in that conflict where you have true choice. Thus, it is losing the election where our current leadership will be revealed and is being revealed right now, which is why I will leave you with this last thought. In leadership, as in life, grace is a silent hero. Grace is silent but active. Grace is a practice, an exercise. Grace is hard. Harder still is knowing when we're not being graceful. Thank you for listening. My name is Bo Lotto, and thank you for listening to my Expanding Perception podcast, which will be an ever-expanding story of the neuroscience of uncertainty and how we can not just cope with it, but expand because of it. My aim in creating this podcast is really to try to help you increase your perceptual intelligence, which will give you the ability to make the decisions and take the actions that will foster a more loving, adaptable, and optimistic life in an increasingly uncertain world. My hope is that this podcast will help you in your journey to self-honesty, which is one of the hardest journeys we can take in our life, since it's a never-ending practice and might take you to places that you might want to avoid. But if you have the courage and compassion to go on this journey, you'll find that it's worth it, and it will create true authenticity in your way of being. A deeper consideration of many of the ideas in the Expanding Perception podcast can be found in my book, Deviate, The Creative Power of Transforming Your Perception. You can also follow me and my lab of misfits on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also take part in experiments on the Lab of Misfits website that we've designed just for you to help you better understand who you are. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy these episodes.